Hello, and welcome to Mayo Talks, a brand new podcast from Mayo Clinic, featuring expert insight on today's medical issues. You can learn more about us at mayotalks.com. This week, we'll be highlighting talks from the annual Selected Topics in Internal Medicine Conference held in sunny Kauai, Hawaii. Today's talk, Updates in Hypertension, What the Generalists Need to Know, presented by Dr. Stephen Texter. Well, next we have Dr. Stephen Texter. He's going to be uh, talking to us about updates uh, in hypertension. He's a professor of medicine in the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension at Mayo and uh, an expert in hypertension, so welcome, Stephen. Thanks very much. Mahalo. I have to admire your endurance and patience on this first day. It's a beautiful day outside. What we're going to do in the next few minutes is look at the changing, uh, shifting sands of hypertension. Uh, there are no new guidelines yet, but probably will be, and we'll talk a little about what might drive that. There are some disclosures. My work is mainly in renovascular disease. What they've asked me to touch on in the next few minutes is a little bit where we are at the moment with the use of ambulatory blood pressure monitors, what to make of the new trials that have come out, particularly the SPRINT trial you've heard a bit about over the last year, and what would be the role of mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, like spironolactone and aplerinone. And so those are, those are the items we'll touch on now. I do want to remind you that really the classification of hypertension has not changed. This is one of the most treatable risk factors. Uh, we know that above 115 or 120, for every 20 millimeters of mercury higher, cardiovascular risk doubles. So this nationwide and in your practices is one of the most useful things one can do to treat. And we define hypertension above 140 over 90. Again, that hasn't changed. May change a bit with some of the new trial data, but that has always been our threshold. In, in view of these sort of relatively narrow bands at the moment, it makes sense that measuring blood pressure is still a challenge. And all of us, I think, have faced the fact that it's hard to know what a person's blood pressure is. This is an example from an ambulatory monitor. You can see that each line represents a blood pressure reading. It's really quite variable. It's very hard to know what a person's blood pressure is. It varies during the time of day and with activity. There's a fall at night. You can appreciate that in the uh, evening hours, it'll go to very low levels. There's a surge in the early morning hours, and sometimes the early morning readings are the highest of the day. So it's a bit hard to define. People have argued that we're used to seeing, of course, clinic readings. Those are the easiest by far. We have a lot of experience, and those are the pressures on which most of the clinical trial data are based on. But I think we'd all agree that they're tough to reproduce, and there is the white coat effect that you've all seen. Home blood pressure monitoring is coming into its own, and we support that. It does give the patient control over their life, and there are a lot of inexpensive uh, uh, agent, uh, uses available to measure blood pressure. There are good data encouraging this, Im this improves adherence to medications. The problem is there aren't many outcome data, and some people get fixated on this, as I'm sure you've seen, and it can become a bit of an issue. Ambulatory monitoring does give you the advantage of a lot of values. 
And it does give you data overnight with sleep data and treatment over the entire dose. But as a rule, it's a bit more expensive. It used to be difficult to obtain, but nowadays it's available, I think, for most of us. It's a little hard to talk people into doing it many times, so one has to use it a bit wisely. So let me share a case and just take a vote. This is a 22-year-old we saw recently with, with a history of some complex uh, neurosurgical disorders, Arnold Chiari malformation and recurrent syringomyelia, who was doing quite well finishing college. But during his last couple years, he's had some significant blood pressure elevations, sometimes as high as the 155 over 95 range. Now, he had been using a cousin of Adderall, something, I, Vyvanse, which I really hadn't heard of uh, until this gentleman came in. But when we saw him, his blood pressures really were in the 120-77 range, confirmed by my exam. So here's the question for you. The family is really quite worried. He's had previous neurosurgical uh, malformations. And the question is really, what would be the most accurate way to characterize his blood pressure status? Would you encourage home blood pressure monitoring? Would you consider a challenge with Vyvanse, that's lethamphetamine? Should we be measuring plasma renin activity or an ambulatory blood pressure monitor? Let me have you weigh in and see what do we agree. So that ought to be a poll. Let's take a good. Well, amazingly enough, this is a talk about ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, and I figure that's a no-brainer, but I congratulate you that home blood pressure monitoring would not be a bad choice. But what's stunning, and the reason I'm showing this case, is that this was a remarkable example of a young man who really had normal pressures in the office, and even at calibration of his monitor, who very quickly had an awake average reading throughout the day, really 20 or 30 millimeters higher. This is so-called masked hypertension. It occurs in maybe 15 or 20 percent of people with uh, otherwise undiagnosed disease. He did have a normal nocturnal fall, and it did warrant both further evaluation and treatment in this case. He actually had fibromuscular dysplasia. What I'd argue is that this is a standard way of measuring. As I mentioned, it's quite changeable during the course of the day. We expect a nocturnal fall. This is sort of a summary of the, the current levels of accepted normal blood pressure readings. That the awake average is a little bit lower than we expected. This correlates with an office reading of 140 over 90. We expect there to be a nighttime fall at least 20, 10 to 20 percent so-called dipping pattern. And failure to see that dipping pattern does carry with it some risk. Here's an example of someone who, although they have significant blood pressure elevation during their awake periods, you'll notice there's an overt reversal of the daytime fall, a nocturnal hypertension really to quite elevated levels. And we see this not uncommonly in people with diabetes or people with autonomic dysfunction people with significant cardiovascular risk. The reason I highlight that is that even though one can see a general relationship between clinic blood pressures and cardiovascular and stroke risk, the correlation in a large cohort, more than 5,000 patients followed, is much better with the 24-hour reading and, in fact, the nocturnal levels 
are probably the strongest single predictor of uh, cardiovascular risk associated with hypertension. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force confirmed that, that even in large studies where they've done a meta-analysis, correcting for office readings have argued that ambulatory monitoring provides an independent measure of cardiovascular risk, even after adjusting for the office levels. So we'd argue that in 2017, probably ambulatory blood pressure monitoring should be part of your toolbox. Medicare accepts it for individuals with suspected white coat hypertension. I've shown you a case and would argue that mask hypertension is a real issue and uh, when uh, on your radar screen probably should involve ambulatory monitoring. It allows far more precise risk stratification. It's a way we evaluate resistance to drug therapy. People that are really failing antihypertensive control, this is the way to really verify true blood pressure levels are those that are having hypotensive episodes. It's interesting that the UK and Great Britain, who really I think are ahead of us in hypertension, have recommended using an ambulatory monitor really for everyone at some point in their treatment career before committing them to lifelong uh, medications. We don't probably yet, but it's, it should be much more readily on your radar screen. Well, secondly, let me just highlight the fact that we've come to accept that blood pressure rises with age. And so it's not so much if people are going to get hypertension, it's, it's when. It's when do they cross the threshold that this poses a risk that warrants therapy. And I think we've all seen that. So here's the second question for you. This is a man, 76, who's had hypertension for about 15 years on chlorothaladone and lisinopril. Been a smoker, but otherwise quite healthy. His blood pressure, though, taken in the clinic in a quiet room with an automated unit is about 148 over 70. And his question to you is, well, for this man, which of the following best reflects prospective trial data regarding intensifying his blood pressure treatment, say, toward a goal of 120 over 80? Could you assure him that, well, the mortality would be improved? Would you say that his stroke risk might go down, but there's really not much benefit for cardiovascular disease? Would you argue that, well, patients over 75 have been underrepresented in trials and really were excluded, so we can't really say? Or would you say that whatever reduced cardiovascular risk with intensive therapy is offset by high risk of falls? What do you think? I would argue, and this is an interesting point, that the data from SPRINT would argue that the mortality for a non-diabetic is distinctly improved. Most of you thought that uh, the uh, increased risk of falls ought to be a real consideration here. We'll come back to that in a moment. It's interesting to me, and I think this is important, this is in the context of the JNC-8 guidelines which were sort of a revision a couple of years ago and backed off a little bit from the intensive blood pressure goals that had been set in JNC7. If you'll recall, people had argued, well, there, there's a good inference to be made that lower is better, 
And so the original guidelines for diabetics, for example, and people chronic kidney disease and JNC7 were less than 130 over 80. But the, the group in the JNC8 uh, committees really sort of said, wait a minute, what is the evidence base? And if we use truly prospective trial-based data, they were really less sure about that and backed off those goals. So they ended up saying, well, we would argue that the data we have would support treating just to below 140 over 90 and those less than 60 with really no special considerations for diabetes or chronic kidney disease. And for people that were over 60, 150 over 90 was that group. And then along came the SPRINT trial, which you've heard about. This is a, a uh, systolic blood pressure intervention trial. This was a trial that randomized more than 9,000 individuals over 50. They had some cardiovascular risk. Many of them were already on therapy, and they very specifically said, does it matter if we target 140 over 90 or go to a systolic level below 120? The primary outcome was myocardial infarction, stroke, any coronary syndrome, or death. The point I'd make is that they excluded diabetics because, and we'll talk about it in a moment, the ACCORD trial a few years earlier, it specifically addressed the same issue in diabetics. So these are non-diabetic individuals. Their treatment algorithm was really quite rigorous. They followed these individuals quite closely. There's more than 9,000 patients. They were treated over 100 different centers. They would see them each month for at least three months and in a stepwise fashion titrate drugs. You'll notice that they're not really resistant hypertension. I say that the, the number of drugs required to reach 140 over 90 was really just under two. The number of drugs to reach the more intensive group was just under three. So these were moderate hypertensives followed closely. And you'll notice that they did achieve really quite quickly in a regular way levels in their goal blood pressures. It was really quite systematic. The average systolic reading was in the 134 range. The average here was about 121. Good separation by about 14 or 15 millimeters of mercury. The trial was really quite definitive in a sense. It was stopped early. Over several points it became clear that people in the intensive therapy group we're having reduced rates of evidence and reduced mortality. These are the kind of event rates, 1.65% per year compared to a little over 2%. But that was a relative reduction of 25% in the composite outcome and in fact mortality, which was the basis for stopping the trial. People were dying more frequently in the untreated uh, segment. Here are the outcome data. This is the primary outcome. This was the death from any cause. You can see that the absolute rates of events are quite low. This is moderate hypertension. But there was no question that it made a difference. Those people with more intensively treated lower blood pressures were having lower rates of outcomes. And they were having lower mortality. The question that came, they had deliberately overrepresented in this trial patients over 75. About 28% had, were above 75. About the same percentage had some element of chronic kidney disease, and a separate publication in JAMA came out regarding specifically those people over 75. And they rated them by frailty. 
And it was interesting that each frailty category, from low frailty to moderate to even fairly substantial frailty, all of them nonetheless did have some benefit from intensive treatment. But I'd point out the fact that there was a higher rate of hypotension, electrolyte abnormalities, uh, uh, difficulty tolerating drug therapy in, in all of the trial overall. So there's no question, and you've all seen this, as you push antihypertensive therapy, you can reach a point where people become unsteady. Within the trial, they were not having more falls. It wasn't causing them fatal events. And in fact, the mortality benefit was quite substantial. So they would argue that really in all of the subgroups, including the older individuals, they were seeing similar benefits to more intensive therapy. And whether this will come on to lead to a change in our thinking about guidelines for treating is a very real possibility. My colleague, Dr. Taylor, is on those groups, and I think they're working very hard on this. What we have to rely on, though, are consider the juxtaposition to a trial that came out a few years earlier, which was a very similarly designed trial in diabetics. This was the ACCORD trial. I think you've probably heard about it or heard of it. Again, the very similar target levels. The question was whether systolic, pushing a systolic to lower than 120 was an advantage or not. Very similar, almost identically defined outcomes. And that trial was considered negative. They did not see a benefit for more intensive therapy. There was a signal that stroke was a little bit less in the more intensively treated, but in terms of their primary outcomes and death, they could not identify a difference. And that was part of the reason for backing off from the intensive therapy guidelines that had come before. So we're in a time of a quandary. What's interesting is if you look at the actual rates of their outcomes, they're very similar in terms of their numerical value to those observed in SPRINT. The death rates were actually a bit lower than expected. In fact, the, the people in Accord were quite a bit younger, were 62 as compared to 68 in the SPRINT trial. And they did make a point, and I want to emphasize again, that the serious adverse events that went along with more intensive therapy in the ACCORD trial, and diabetics in particular, were substantially higher. And in fact, that was really part of the rationale for backing off those guidelines, that if you push hard, diabetics especially will not tolerate it very well. Similar results were observed in the SPRINT trial, but none of them were fatal or none of them were uh, falls. Well, people have argued, and there's been a lot of editorials written, and I think we'll hear much more about this. People have said, well, maybe the Accord trial was a bit underpowered. Maybe these results are not so different. There were about half the number. They were younger individuals. Because they used very similar uh, goals, very similar target goals, very similar outcomes, people have said, well, perhaps we should combine them and see if the combined data differ or going in the same direction. And in this article, they would argue that, well, the ACCORD data really are quite good agreement about stroke, that the reduction in stroke risk is really quite substantial. The same is true for heart failure, and overall, their primary outcome, especially if you do them, would probably go in the same direction. Now, whether or not uh, all of this is true, 
And, and how to reconcile these, I think, it remains to be a bit debated. But in general, people would argue that the, the overall trial outcome would argue that you gain a little by pushing a little bit harder, particularly in people without diabetes. The argument has been that Accord really didn't have the statistical power to define these benefits. But these are large trials. My take on this is that you have to be careful and I think consider really the absolute risk. What is, what's the absolute benefit you get? And there's been a very interesting set of studies, a meta-analysis of all the trials or many of the trials in hypertension trying to see what is the gain for lowering blood pressure further. And what's clear is that the absolute benefit, the number of events that you prevent, are by far the largest in people at the highest risk. I guess there's no surprise. People at the very oldest age, people with highest blood pressures. So my take is on it, the, clearly the benefit of lowering blood pressure is greatest when you're going from 180 to 160. When you go from 160 to 140, you gain further. You gain some going from 140 to 120, but you start to pay a price. And the question is, what's the right approach? One, one thing is for sure, these trials argue a bit against a J-curve. That is, in a prospective trial and people that can tolerate treatment, they generally tolerate blood pressures very well without an increased mortality risk. So I think if you're seeing patients that tolerate therapy and are doing well, there's certainly no justification for backing off. You can make a case for some added benefit with a modest increase, but you end up paying a little bit of price. You get the biggest bang for the buck for the initial therapy, however. Well, what about resistant hypertension? I'm going to touch on that just for a moment. Uh, people that are not doing well on therapy, uh, we see a fair number in people that referred for hypertension evaluation. I want to underscore the fact that many of these people really aren't taking their medications very well. That's a whole other issue. Adherence is an issue. But of those people that we think are adhering, many of them will have secondary causes. And much of that can be renal disease, renovascular disease, obesity, sleep apnea. But let's touch for a moment on aldosterone. And what's been, become apparent in the last decade or two is the use of the aldosterone-renin ratio as a way of identifying people with inappropriate aldosterone production. And that has been observed both wor worldwide, in Rochester and in many other places, the, the ability to identify people with inappropriate aldosterone production is much more common than previously thought, partly related perhaps to obesity. You'll notice that most of these are not adenomas or cancers. Many of them are not hypokalemic, but they have inappropriate and occasionally non-suppressible aldosterone production. Interesting observation, people are studying this, that in, at autopsy studies, if you remove adrenals with age, there's a fairly high frequency of somatic gene mutations leading to clusters of cells in the adrenal, which produce aldosterone kind of in an unregulated fashion. Not in gigantic amounts, not big enough to be a tumor, but basically clusters of overproducing cells. We've learned a lot about aldosterone in the last few years. We used to view this strictly as a, a modest effector of sodium reabsorption and regulating K secretion, but it turns out it has many other direct effects on vascular remodeling and tissue injury. 
It's a direct toxin to the kidney. It turns out that unopposed aldosterone is a real problem. What's striking about it is that if one looks at, particularly in resistant hypertension, studies from not only Caucasians, or not only African Americans, but Caucasians as well have shown that this inappropriate aldosterone production may be much more common than we thought. And at least in this study from Alabama, about 20% of was about the same between black and white subjects. What's been striking about it is that when one adds a receptor blocker, mineralocorticoid receptor blocker, the fall in blood pressure is really quite substantial. And that's been one of the sort of secrets of hypertension for many years, that in people that are just not doing well, if you throw in a little bit of spironolactone, it can make a huge difference. Maybe tough to tolerate, but it can make a huge difference in blood pressure levels. This was confirmed, really, in a, a systematic study in the UK. This was a treatment called the PATHWAY trial, published about a year ago, of about 350-odd patients with adherent three-drug regimens that had not reached goal blood pressures. And they went on a rotating schedule, looking at uh, 12 weeks of bisoprolol therapy, a beta blocker, or doxazosin, cardura, an alpha blocker, or spironolactone at fairly modest doses. And it was quite clear that the blood pressure reduction associated with spironolactone was really better than the other agents. So their conclusion was that spironolactone really ought to be in your toolbox for resistant hypertension. It's probably the best fourth-line drug. An interesting study from the Czech Republic compared adding spironolactone to renal denervation. Renal denervation is widely used in Europe as a, as a treatment for resistant hypertension. And what was interesting is that after six, six months after therapy, the reductions in blood pressure with renal denervation were about the same as a plerinone. And it turns out that basically it's as effective. They ran into a fair amount of trouble in the sense of occasionally people get hyperkalemic Creatinine went up a bit, and as you know, gynecomastia can be an issue with these agents. Aplerinone is substantially better, and now is generic, so the cost is not such a factor, and really can be used in males reasonably successfully. So what I've tried to do, kind of in a, in a whirlwind fashion, is take you with a few of the points of blood pressure as we see it today. We're big believers in using ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, particularly in people that are difficult to characterize or may have unexpected mast hypertension or a significant resistant to treatment. I've tried to give you a, gl a glimpse of the SPRINT trial and the ACCORD trial and argue that yes, you can gain something by more intensive blood pressure. My own take is that it's easy to overstate that. And there is a role for blocking the mineralocorid receptor using these antagonists, spironolactone and plerinone, but I would look at it primarily as a third or fourth line agent. With that, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. You can find additional podcasts and other videos from Selected Topics in Internal Medicine at mayotalks.com. Mayo Talks is a copyrighted program from Mayo Clinic.